You know, news is pretty powerful. It's really powerful. Um, and into the 21st century, the 21st century ears are probably never more than before been more pounded with bad news. Um, I mean, we are just aware of the bad stuff going on in the world at a level that we've never been aware before. I mean, I don't know that there's ever been a civilization, in fact, I know there's never been a civilization that every day is sort of subjected to having to see and hear the worst things in the entirety of the planet. Um, it really, news really affects us. Uh, I saw this Times article, I wanted to read to you just a, a little part of it regarding this. It says, the way that news is presented and the way that we access news has changed significantly over the last 15 to 20 years, says Graham Davy, a professor Emirates of psychology, uh, it's sexist, blah, 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 his, his, his pedigree. Uh, some of Davies' research has shown that the negative TV news is a significant mood changer, and the moods it tends to produce are sadness and anxiety. Our studies also showed that this change in mood exacerbates the viewer's own personal worries, even when those worries are not directly relevant to the news stories being broadcast. He says, while increased anxiety and stress are reason enough to be wary of overdoing it when it comes to the news, these and other mental health afflictions can also fuel physical ailments. Stress-related hormones, namely cortisol, have been linked to inflammation associated with rheumatoid arthritis, cardiovascular disease, and other serious health concerns. So if the evidence suggests that news can stress people out, why do they keep going back for more? For one thing, it's entertaining. Davy says the human brain is also wired to pay, listen to this, to pay attention to information that scares or unsettles us, a concept known as negativity bias. In a state of nature, our survival depends on finding rewards and avoiding harm, but avoiding harm takes priority, says Loretta, whatever her last name is, a former professor of whatever that place is at the University of California, East Bay, and author of Habits, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so the idea here that this article is getting at is that the, the, the amount of negativity of things happening in the world that we take in on a daily, it's actually starting to have an effect on our health and our well-being as humans. Now, my, my point here isn't to say that you shouldn't read the news. I think that you should. Uh, my point here is to say that news is powerful. It's really powerful. And, and bad news has an effect on you. The reason it's powerful is because the purpose of news is to inform you of something so that you can make a reaction to that, right? So, so if I come into the room and I say, hey, you know, there, there's a fire next door, your immediate sort of instincts is going to be like, we need to leave. There's a reaction to that news, okay? Uh, and when every day you're getting up and you're, and you're sort of reading things that are telling you the world is terrible and, and then you can't react to it, it starts to fry your nerves. <laughs> like there's all this bad stuff happening and I can't do anything about it. There's people dying, people starving, people killing each other, people, you know, there's all this political unrest and, 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 and all this just problems and balance in the world. I can't do anything about it. And, and news is starting to affect us in that way. But the gospel is news. Did you know that? It's news. You know, we use that word gospel a lot. It's kind of a buzzword uh, around here, and it's because it's a good word. And it's used in the New Testament uh, like 120 times. Okay, and what gospel really means, uh, let me break down uh, the word for you a little bit here. The, what, what gospel really means, it's, it's from the Greek word euangelion. Uh, the verb form of it is euangelizo. Uh, it's to bring or announce good news. So the gospel isn't just Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The gospel is, it's a message. 
It's a message of something that's happened. Um, the word uh, euangelion became a technical term for the message of victory that was delivered when, when a conquering king um, had taken the battlefield. They would send a messenger to evangelize the city, to let them know that, that, the, that the battlefield had been taken, that the good news, the herald would come and, and bring the good news. That's what the gospel is. It's good news. And the book of Acts is all about how that good news affected a group of people. Now, news has the ability to affect us negatively. It also has the ability to affect us positively. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that we can respond to it. It doesn't just leave us going, oh, well, that's just the way it is, and there's nothing I can do about it. The gospel is a reality that when we hear it, we can actually do something in response to it. This is what happened in the book of Acts. Okay? They were responding to a reality. They were responding to something that happened. The book of Acts um, and the explosive growth of the early church, it didn't happen because um, these guys sort of were given this guilt message, right? Like Peter gets up and he says, hey, you guys need to go tell people um, about Jesus. And they said, oh, okay, we'll do it. You know, they felt terrible. The explosive growth of the early church was a response to the reality of something that happened. It's like an explosion, just Boom, this explosion of growth that came from the early church because of a reality of what happened, because of what Jesus did. It was a response to news. Are you with me? Now, the enemy would have us to think that Christianity is insurgent, that the gospel isn't moving, that what we read in the book of Acts was exciting, but now, um, you know, Christianity is sort of on its way out. That's what the enemy would like you to believe, that the gospel isn't still explosively growing throughout the world. But let me assure you that that's just absolutely not the truth. Okay? And the news I want you to tune into this morning um, is, is for a second, let's tune out of all the bad news that we take in every day. Let's tune into the good news. The good news is that Jesus is going to win. In fact, Jesus won. Okay, he already won. And the gospel is the proclamation of that good news, that he is one, he is winning, and he will win. So my message this morning, I'm not going to tell you to do anything. Isn't that exciting? I mean, how many times do you go to church and nobody tells you to do anything, right? I'm not going to tell you to do anything. All I'm going to tell you this morning is what's already happened, because it's really all we need to hear this morning. This morning's message is not, it's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. I'm not prescribing something for you to do. I'm just telling you something true. And then we're naturally going to be able to respond to that. The, the, the gospel in its movement is explosive. It's just as explosive now as it was in the beginning. The Old Testament prophesied it. The, the word proto-evangelium, have you heard that? It's first gospel. God said he was going to do it. He said he was going to conquer sin. He said he was going to take out the enemy. Um, he said he was going to crush the head of the snake, and he did it. It was prophesied. Um, listen to Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. This entire earth will be enveloped with God's word, God's will. Uh, listen to uh, Isaiah 46, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying what? My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purpose. This is what God says. I'm gonna do it. He said he was gonna do it. He did it. He's doing it. He's gonna do it. This is the good news this morning. You know, we don't talk a lot about how Christianity is actually exploding throughout the world globally. Uh, it's, it's actually, in, in many ways, it seems to be decreasing in our country, and that's because well, there's a lot of reasons to that. We're in a post-Christendom 
era in our country, but throughout the world, the gospel is exploding. Listen to this. The numbers of Christians around the world is nearly quadrupled in the last 100 years, from about 600 million in 1910 to more than 2 billion in 2010. Okay, that's massive. Now, I understand that the world's population has grown, but regardless of that, that's in a massive amount of growth. The share of population that is Christian in sub-Saharan Africa climbed from 9% in 1910 to 63% in 2010. That's massive growth. In the Asia-Pacific region, it rose from 3% to 7%. Okay? Christianity today, uh, it's a global faith, like God said it would be. Like the Abrahamic covenant. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because of the one that will come through this line. This is the good news of what you are a part of. Now, we come here, and it's a small group, and it feels sometimes like, like we're just sort of part of this little, little rebellion or something. But you're part of a massive movement that is literally run by God the Father through the Holy Spirit because of Jesus the Son, because he's at the right hand of the Father ruling and reigning. And the, the church itself is massively on the move. The gospel is on the move. It's important that we remember that. It's important that we remember that. So the topic this morning, again, it's not, it's not something to do, it's just something to remember. And the star of this text we're going to look at in Acts chapter 5, the star is not the church. It's not the apostles. Okay? It is the movement of the, of the gospel by the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus. Jesus is the star of the book of Acts. Just like we saw in the beginning, um, Luke is recording the things, all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus was doing miraculous things in the Gospels, and now he's doing miraculous things through the early church. That's what the book of Acts is all about. This morning, even though we're going to look at persecution, and we're going to look at imprisonment, and we're going to look at all that, that the enemy can do to try to push back against the movement of the Gospel, the story is not about how ter terrible persecution is. It's about how resilient the movement of God's Gospel is. That this thing can't be stopped. It won't be stopped. So in our text, once again, Luke is showing just this relentless, unstoppable, forward movement of the gospel. And that's what we're going to look at. So let's just dive right in um, to the text in chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12. The first part, and I'm just going to run through this text fairly quickly, and we'll go back and, and look at a few things a little more closely. This, this first little section here in verse 12, Luke gives us um, what would be his third synopsis. Luke, from time to time throughout his narrative, he just kind of stops and gives a big snapshot, a sort of a screenshot of what was going on uh, in the early church. And that's what we get right here in verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch. This is the temple, okay? uh, the temple uh, built by Herod, this massive, one of the wonders of the world, this massive temple. Um, and it needed to be massive because at this point, these guys are running about 10,000 plus. This movement went from 120 to over 10,000 in a matter of weeks, in a matter of months. And they have no place that can hold them all. Okay? Some people hate megachurches. Well, I'm sorry, this is a megachurch. Okay, and they met in small groups. That's just what they did. Okay, over 10,000 people, explosive growth. They're meeting in the temple daily in Solomon's portico. Verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now, that's kind of interesting. It's basically saying that there's some of these believers that are not interested in going out and meeting in public because they're afraid. Now, we don't know exactly what they're afraid of. There was plenty of things to be afraid of. They might have been afraid of the temple police. 
They might have been afraid of the fact that Ananias and Sapphira just dropped dead a few days before for lying to the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're not really sure, but regardless, there's sort of a home church going on there, uh, and they're, they're streaming from home, right? They're not quite ready to show up. Um, but needless to say, they are still part of the church. Luke includes them. And even regardless of the fear and the seriousness of what it would have looked like to, to gather with the Christians, the church is still growing. Isn't that crazy? You know, there's a seeker-friendly kind of movement in, in, in Christianity. So we need to make church as easy as possible for people to feel as comfortable as they possibly can. Otherwise, nobody's going to come. Uh, that's not what's going on here. People are terrified to come to the temple and worship, but the church is growing daily at the same exact time. Okay, so there's a seriousness to what it means to sign on to this faith. There's a seriousness of what it means to say we are, we're part of this movement of the gospel here. 14, uh, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and, how, and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Okay, now we're seeing just massive healing going on here. Mass, so much so that, that, that the crowds are so insurgent that like when Jesus was there, they, they can't even get to the apostles. So they're literally bringing their friends on cots and they're, they're setting them on the sides of the road so that as the apostles walk through, that maybe their shadow will, will somehow bring healing. Now, Luke doesn't say whether they got healed or not. That's not the point, okay? The point is that they are so impressed by the power of God that they literally think maybe even if his shadow gets on there, Maybe they'll get healed. Well, God may see that as a sign of uh, an act of faith. I mean, think about the woman who touched the tassel of Jesus' robe and, and somehow power passed through him, through his robe, and to this woman, and she got healed. This is how powerful the kingdom of God is. Okay? This is, this is how radioactive this moment in time is. The Holy Spirit has just shown up like a nuclear bomb, and everyone who's within a hundred, you know, whatever, whatever, how far away you can be from a nuclear bomb where radiation still affects, I don't know. But, but if you're close enough to it, you're going to get some radiation. Okay? Um, now, don't get me wrong. The Holy Spirit's not a tube. Okay? It's not as though, you know, he's here, but he's not there. But, but the Holy Spirit has done miraculous kingdom work here, and anyone who's even close to it at this point is having some access to that. It says all of them were healed, everybody. What's happening here is that the kingdom of God, where there is no sickness, where there is no brokenness, where there is no sin, where there is no um, any of the things that we struggle with, the kingdom of God is breaking in to the fallen and broken world, cursed because of Adam. Do you see that? It's breaking in. And as it's breaking in, it's bringing all of the healing that comes with the kingdom, Okay. Now, I really wanted to spend some time talking with you guys about kind of um, how this is somewhat of a unique thing here, um, but I really don't have the time to talk about it. So if you have questions about that, um, because there are movements out there that are saying that we should be like this today, okay, um, come talk to me about that. I'd really like to, to dialogue, and maybe one of these weeks we'll have time to address it, but there's just too much text here. But this is a unique thing here, and the point of this, let me just say this, the point of this power is not so that people can get rooted in the experience, and so people can get rooted in the message of what the apostles are saying. Do you understand? It's not about the experience. It's about the message. The power of what God is doing in this is to authenticate the message of the apostles so that 2,000 years later, we don't go, well, we didn't experience that, so I don't have any faith. We go, no, no, that validates the message that I can believe and hear and embody today. Okay, that's the point. The point was the gospel. The point was the message, and the power validated the message of the apostles. 
Okay? Uh, Now take a look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees. Now we've talked about them a little bit last week, for those of you that are joining us. Sadducees were kind of a smaller party in Israel. Okay, they were sort of the, the deists of their day, the religious skeptics. The Pharisees were the ones that were all about sort of the, the mystical things. They were into resurrection. They were into angels. They were into demons. And they were the, the rabbinical teachers. The Sadducees were kind of the, the, the rich deists that didn't really think God cared about what was going on in the world. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. And they, hold, they held the power to the temple. They held the power to the temple, and they made all the money from the temple. They're in charge of the temple. And the majority of the Sanhedrin, this, this Senate, as Luke refers to it, this council, uh, was made up of the Sanhedrin. Okay, they're, they're, they're a mafia-type family. All of the power is concentrated in a single family uh, that pulls all of the, the strings and makes all the money. That's why Jesus was so ticked off when he came into the temple and he saw that it was a money-making racket, right? So these guys, these Sadducees, Luke notes, are filled with jealousy, Luke's starting to develop for us some of the, the deeper reason behind the, 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 the action of the Sadducees. They're jealous. Pretty simple, basic response of a fallen human being. Jealousy. I mean, imagine how these guys feel. Within a month, 10,000 people are taking the money not to the temple, but to the feet of the disciples or the apostles. <laughs> the money's not going where, it's, where they want it to go. It's always about money, isn't it? It's why they killed Jesus, because Jesus was diverting their money from the temple into uh, other things, right? So so they're bringing the money to the feet of the apostles, and the Sadducees are jealous. I don't know that they're jealous of the notoriety as much as they're probably jealous of the money, to be honest, because this is what motivated these guys. 18, they arrested the apostles again. Notice this time, it's not just Peter and John. Last time, it was just Peter and John. Now, it's all of them. All the apostles are arrested. So the persecution is widening. It's ramping up. It's heating up. And put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, I got to point out how comical this is. The Sadducees don't believe in angels. (laughs) And God sends one to let them out. I think that's funny. Go and stand in the temple, the angel says, and speak to the people all the words of, notice, this life. Why, why, why that? Why does the angel say this life? Why does he say gospel? Why does he say message? He says this life. It's actually interesting. That was one of the names they believed that um, they may have referred to Christians as um, before they were referred to as Christians. One of them was the way. Another one, they think, was the life. It's one of the things I considered naming this church, actually, the life. Okay? It's this, this, this idea. The Greek word is zoe. There's two words for life in the Greek language. One is bios. Bios refers to sort of the physical universe. Okay, the things that sort of have life, but it's temporal, and it needs uh, some sort of an outside life to, to, make it, to make it function. So my body is bios. It only functions if God's uh, sort of allowing it to. If I eat food and there's, there's a source of energy. Zoe is the word for life that is used here. Zoe is the spiritual life. It's the life that, that doesn't need a source because God is the source of it. It's, it's the same word that the New Testament authors use over and over and over again. You might be familiar with a few of these. Acts eleven eighteen. when they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. John chapter 6, 
Uh, John, the apostle, loved this word. He truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Zoe, that's the word that's used there. John, uh, John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. That is they that bear witness about me. Jesus' whole point was that he was the life. He was the Zoe, the life that they needed. We have bios already. But what we don't have is zoe. We don't have the life of God, and that's what the Spirit brings when he comes and lives within us. With regeneration, when we get born again, the Spirit comes and lives within us. But what Luke is doing here is he's just further developing this idea that this message that they bring was a life-giving message. So much so that the angel wants them to continue to give it. Now look at verse 21. And when they had heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, and began to teach. Now when the high priest came, and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. <laughs> but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. Now notice these words Luke chooses when he writes this about them, wondering what this would come to. What is this going to come to? How in the world are these guys free? The door's locked. The guards are there. Does it remind you of anything? Reminds you of Christ's resurrection a little bit, isn't it? I mean, God does what he wants to do. And these guys are perplexed. I mean, they, 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 they hold the trial. They're ready to, to call the, the, the accused. They go to get them, and they're not there. Can't figure it out. What is this going to come to? I think Luke is teasing out an idea here that he wants us to answer, and that is what is this going to come to? What is this whole thing, this gospel movement, this, this movement of people that worship Jesus and believe he resurrected, what is it going to come to? Is it going to become something? 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people the very thing they got arrested for doing. Hey, those guys you're looking for, they're out there preaching. Exactly like you arrested them for doing yesterday. Here they are. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So the populace is, is beginning to switch. Thousands and thousands of people now are, are, are worshiping Jesus, looking to the apostles. The Sadducees aren't stupid. Okay? Their customer base their customer base now favors the apostles. So if they go and arrest these guys in a, in a violent way and start some kind of a problem, they're going to have a mob on their hands. And they're afraid they're going to get stoned. And, and I don't mean that like they're going to get civilly stoned. I mean they're going like to start chucking rocks at them if they do this. The same thing that they were afraid of with Jesus. Remember that? Do you notice how many similarities there are between Acts and the Gospels? I mean, this is really the continuation. Everything Jesus did in his life and ministry, the early church is doing the same thing. Okay, the continuation of Jesus' work. They tried to kill him. They're trying to kill these guys. They're trying to silence Jesus. They're trying to silence these guys. They're afraid of the populist vote. They're afraid. Of, it's the same story over and over again. 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled, I love this, filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Whose blood? Jesus. What's he talking about? Every time Peter says anything about these Sadducees, he accuses them of killing Jesus. Every time. 
You killed Jesus. You killed the Messiah. God raised him. You killed him. God raised him. You killed him. God raised him. He said it like three or four times up to this point. And they're tired. Like, stop trying to make us feel bad about killing this guy. But they should feel bad because they did kill him, right? That's the reality. But Peter and the apostles answered, I love this, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. Now, here Peter's going to give a really short snapshot of a message, okay? Here's what he says. He said, the God of our father raised Jesus. Now, that's not talking about resurrection. That's talking about the God of our father brought Jesus into this world and raised him up as a human, fully God, fully man, for his purposes. The God of our father raised Jesus, whom you killed. He says it again. Just in case they forgot, you're guilty. By hanging him on a tree, and he uses that word on a tree on purpose. He's talking to people that knew the Torah, knew the Old Testament, and it says in the Torah, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Okay, so he's saying you cursed, you, you, you put the Messiah, the Son of God, in a position in the place of cursing, which of course was part of God's plan because God, Jesus received the cursing that we that we deserved and gave us the blessing that he deserved, right? That's the gospel. God exalted him at his right hand. And note these two words, we'll come back to them, as leader and savior. Notice they're capitalized, if you have a good translation. Leader and savior. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Notice he says, we are witnesses. You Remember the Great Commission? Jesus says, go and be my witnesses. He doesn't say go witness. He says, go be witnesses. This is the problem in evangelicalism is we've made witnessing a, a sort of a thing we do rather than a thing we are, right? A thing we do. I mean, it, and the reason we do that is because we like to compartmentalize what we're supposed to do for the Lord. <laughs> I witness on Friday nights at 7. That's when I witness, okay? No, no, you are a witness, you have witnessed the resurrection of the Lord. 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, note that, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Who is this guy? Who is this guy Luke brings up into the narrative? This Pharisee, he's a Pharisee, stands up. He's part of the council, obviously a prominent guy. He stands up, and he says, hey, hold on a minute. Send these guys out of here. Let's talk. Okay, and Gamaliel, who actually was one of the most famous rabbis of his day, you might recognize him uh, as the um, tutor of the Apostle Paul. Okay, he was the one that trained the Apostle Paul in Judaism. Okay? This guy was basically the ultimate seminary of his day. He's the one everybody wanted to go to. He was the guy that if you wanted to have the right pedigree, you studied under him. So when Paul says, I studied under Gamaliel, he's saying, I learned from the best in Judaism, in Phariseeism. Okay? This guy, uh, he was loved by all the people. He's obviously powerful because he stands up and he says, hey, send them out of here, let's talk. And they all do it. God commands some, some power in the room. Okay? Um, he was the grandson of the, 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 or the pupil of Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, who was uh, from 70 BC, extremely famous rabbi even before that. So this guy, he carries some weight. He carried the allegiance of the people. So he stands up and look at what he says in verse 35. He said to them, men of Israel, take care 
what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who believed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, let them alone. Listen to this, listen to what he says. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Interesting advice. Now, I think that Luke includes this advice because remember, Luke wrote this, and he wrote it not only as a history, but as a narrative. He wants you to, he wants the, the, the author to, or pardon me, he wants the, the person reading it to sort of ask questions of what he's about to say. And I think the question Luke is trying to get us to ask here is, is Gamaliel, is, is what Gamaliel's saying true? Will this amount to something? Is it going to continue? Is this of God? Is the movement that we're seeing in the book of Acts, is it of God or is it of man? He brings up these two accounts of two different people in history uh, in the first century that arose and, and started riots and started all these kinds of things. They had, they had followings for a little while and the following ended. I remember uh, <laughs> sitting with Alistair Begg, um, and, and that makes me sound like I'm name dropping. I don't know him. I don't hang out with him, but we were just happened to be at this conference. Uh, sitting with this person, Alistair Begg. Anyways, we were, we were sitting and, and, and we were asking him because there was, you guys remember Todd Bentley, the guy that like, He's just a screwball. Um, and he, he was coming to Medford to do a, a revival or whatever. And we were trying to like tell our people, like, hey, don't, don't go to this thing, okay? This guy's, this guy's he's really not a, a good guy. And um, we, we were getting blowback from it and all this kind of stuff. And, and so um, I remember we were at this conference and we asked Alistair, and it was this amazing teacher, his Scottish accent. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's, uh, we're like, hey, what do you do about this kind of stuff? He just kind of stops. And he goes, well... The circus comes into town, you let them do their thing, they move out, you clean up the, he used the C-A-R-A-P word, and then you move on with life. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. It's kind of what Gamaliel's saying here. He's saying, hey, look, if this is just a thing, it's going to end. And, and, and just by the way, don't be impressed by people that can draw a crowd. You know, don't, don't be impressed. It's, it's not impressive to draw a crowd. Drawing a crowd actually isn't that hard. It's, it's, the, it's the abiding things that really matter. And, and what Gamaliel is right in saying is he's saying if this is really substantive, then, then it's going to continue. But he's actually, this is actually really bad advice at the same time. It sounds really smart. It sounds really wise. But, but it's actually bad advice because what he's basically saying is anything that succeeds is good. Is that true? No. Look at Islam. Islam's still around. Mormonism's still around. There's all kinds of bad things that are still around. All sorts of wrong things that are still around. Just because something succeeds doesn't mean it's of God. And this kind of advice actually is, is really damaging within the church. Because you say, well, it's only God's will if it works. If it doesn't work, it's not God's will. Tell that to Jeremiah. The guy preached his entire life and he never had a single convert. Wow. I remember, I remember uh, oh, Athey Creek uh, guy, Brett Metter. Brett Metter said the funniest thing. He was like, if we had a conference back in, in 300 B.C. or whatever, and we invited prophets to come teach, Jonah would be the headliner because he had the most results. Jeremiah wouldn't even be invited to speak. He'd just be sitting in the pew, right? The measure of something being true is not necessarily just whether it succeeds. 
The measure of something being true is whether it's faithful to God's command, God's word, right? So this is the reality. So Hillel, uh, Gilel, he, Gamaliel, he's, he's kind of right, but he's also kind of wrong in this. And, and this kind of thing is so damaging, just as a side note, because what people do is they go, God's will is whatever works. And then they get married or something, and all of a sudden their marriage gets hard, and they go, well, she must not have been the one. Uh, well, no. Life is hard, highness. Life is pain, right? Princess Bride, anybody? Life is pain. Get used to disappointment. Okay, this is the reality. Okay, just because something's hard doesn't mean it's not God's will. In fact, some of the best things in life are God's will. Okay, marriage is hard. Parenting is hard. Ministry is hard. All of that is God's will. All of those things are good things, good things that we should be engaging in. Okay, so just as a side note, um, Gamaliel, he's producing the best wisdom that a man can produce without the Spirit of God because it's really all he is. He's just a man, okay? But God providentially uses it. Okay, verse 40, when they had called the apostles, they beat them. Okay, now don't just think of just like a couple lashes. We're talking 39 lashes, 40 minus one, 40 minus one. They beat these guys to a pulp and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What? I mean, we're, like, a lot of us, you know, we've been around church for a while, like, yeah, okay, that's what Christians do. Who does that? Come on. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. In other words, the Messiah is Jesus. That's what they teach. That's what they preached. Now, I have, I only have 10 minutes. Darn it. Okay, I have 10 minutes. What will this come to is the question that's supposed to be answered here. What will this come to? I want to give you three reasons that the gospel movement will never fail. Three reasons the gospel movement will never fail, and I'm going to have to do them kind of fast. Number one, I'll give them all, I'll give all, all, to, all, I'll give them all to you right now. You can write them down and then fill them in. Three reasons the gospel movement will never fail. Number one, because the Father orchestrates. Number two, because the Spirit empowers Notice the Trinitarian thing going on here. Because Jesus conquered, past tense. Okay? Because the Father orchestrates, because the Spirit empowers, because Jesus conquered. Number one, because the Father orchestrates. See, he always uses the enemy's worst to accomplish his best. This is what God does. This is why Christianity will never die. This is why the gospel movement will never stop. Because the worst thing the enemy can bring, God uses it to create his best things. Think about the cross. What was the cross? The cross was humanity trying to kill the Son of God. What did the cross accomplish? Humanity being saved by God. <laughs> Do you see that? The worst thing humanity could conjure up would be to kill the Son of God. And that was God's best plan to save humanity. Isn't that incredible? He uses the worst things. Think about Paul in prison. Okay, the apostle to the Gentiles is sitting in prison, and he's got to be thinking to himself, why am I in prison? How can this be God's will? Do you know why we get to read books like Romans? Specifically Ephesians, Philippians, the prison epistles? Because Paul was sitting in prison. God used, in fact, he even says that God used my imprisonment for the furtherance of the gospel. God brought the gospel into the house of the Roman guards because he was in prison. God used that. Trying to shut the church up is like trying to stamp out a bed of coals and you're just flinging them everywhere. 
You think you're stopping it. It's, in fact, you're just flinging it all over the place. Okay, it wasn't a matter of years before persecution drove the, the Christians in Jerusalem, praise God, out of Jerusalem. Otherwise, they all would have just stayed there. They would have been like, we got a mega church. What else do we need? Let's build a building. Let's get some cool lights. Let's get some fog machines. Jerusalem church is awesome. Everyone can come to us. That's not what happened. Persecution broke out, and they scattered all over the ancient world. The book of Acts is about the fact that the gospel started in Jerusalem and went all the way to the ends of the world, which was Rome at that time. And it happened largely because of persecution. God took what the enemy meant for bad and he used it for good. I, I, I remember this, this season, our, our van has automatic van door uh, openers. Push the button. And my daughter, she was convinced that she opened the door because she, she's not strong enough to open it. So I would wait, and I just thought it was really funny to do this. I'd wait until she got her hand on the door, and I would open it. And I wouldn't do it for any of the other kids. So she thought she was like the master of the door. Like, I can open it, and none of them. And then I remember explaining to her one time, like, you know, you don't actually open that. She's like, yes, I do. And she wouldn't believe me that I opened the door, you know. This is the reality of what's happening here with the gospel. God is orchestrating. He's orchestrating. We're not doing it. He's doing it. He gets the glory. He's the one doing it. He does it not only through his providence, but he also does it through purification. Okay? How in the world do these guys get 39 lashes and then come out the back end even more excited to proclaim the gospel? That sounds like fiction, but it's not. It sounds like fiction, but it's not. The reality is that God uses suffering and persecution to refine the purity of the faith of his people. That's what he does, okay? Peter uses the example of gold and dross. He says he heats up the gold so that the dross comes to the top and you can scrape it off. And the more that you heat it up, the more pure what the gold is. He says your faith, the most valuable piece about you, the thing that believes in God, his, his goal in you is not just to make you happy and fat and comfortable. His goal is to purify your faith. And suffering and persecution does that. It heats up the impurities, that's why the apostles and, and, and Christians for thousands of years have found delight in suffering because they feel united to the suffering of Christ. Like Jesus suffered, I get to suffer. It sounds unreal, but it's the work of the Spirit. It's real life. That's why Jesus said, if anyone wishes to follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. How do you hurt a people whose Lord won by being hurt so they like it when you hurt them? I mean, they may not like it but they grow from it. How do you, how do you stop a movement where, where you beat them up and they say, sweet, that's what happened to Jesus. Now we get to suffer like he did. It's called the fellowship of his suffering. It's all throughout the New Testament. It's incredible. How do you stop a movement who says, great, make us decrease. Take away our influence. Take away our power. When we decrease, he increases. How do you stop? John the Baptist, take my head. Jesus is the point. Snuff out this prophet, another one's going to pop up. It's like that game you used to play with your kids. Remember, I am rubber, and you, 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 I'm rubber, and you are glue, and everything you say to me bounces off me and sticks to you. That's the point here. You can't stop the gospel because God is orchestrating it. Amen? Number two, because the, sp the Spirit empowers it. Not only because the Father orchestrates it, but the Spirit empowers it. He always enables the teaching of the life. Okay, God is serious about preaching. And he's serious about teaching. I want you to see this really quickly. Why does the angel set them free? He says, hey, guys, come out of prison. I want, you're going to miss your Netflix tonight. I really don't want you to miss. You know, there's a new episode out. He sets them free so they can go back and preach and get arrested again. That doesn't make any sense. 
He sets them free so they can keep preaching. Listen to this. The communication of the gospel is both the central objective of the apostles and the central enemy of their opposition. They want to preach, and they don't want them to preach. That's what's really happening here. Okay? Look at verse 20. The angel says, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to what? Teach. And someone came and told them, verse 25, someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple, what? Teaching the people. Verse 28, the Sanhedrin says, we strictly charge you not to, what? Come on, you got it by now, right? Teach. And this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Okay, now what does Peter do in response to the accusation? He teaches. <laughs> okay. They're like, stop teaching. And Peter's like, okay, let me teach the reason why. I'm not going to stop teaching. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor the name 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. This was what the church did. They preached, they teached the news of the gospel. Because it's the most powerful reality in the universe. Why was this such a big deal, both for them and for the Sadducees? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Do you understand that the only thing that you are saved by is the fact that you believe something? And the only way you can believe something is if you hear it. You have to hear it. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we're evangelicals. We believe we should preach the gospel. It's all that really matters is, is what are we believing? Who do we believe in? My mom always used to say, it's not what you do, it's who you trust. How do you know who you trust unless you know who you trust? Okay, this is the purpose. That's why the New Testament authors over and over and over again said, guard the teaching, guard the teaching, get out and teach, preach the gospel. Okay, this was the reality of what they were called to do. They were called... Uh, they were accused of filling Jerusalem with their teaching. And I just want to invite us to say, let's fill Grant's Pass with teaching. Not just biblical knowledge, but teaching about the gospel. Okay? That's the second reason. And the third reason is the most important, so please tune in. Uh, i got six minutes. I don't know why I keep telling you that. I, this, this little clock here, and it, it, like, it should have a big frowny face on it because it just kills all my joy. Um, <laughs> Number three, the third reason the gospel movement will never stop, because Jesus, past tense, because Jesus conquered. It's done. It's finished. Listen, our champion has already taken the field. Peter, verse 9, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And listen to this. God exalted him at his right hand. Now, we look at that and we think, right hand, okay, so that means Jesus is the assistant to the manager? Does that mean that he's like at the right hand? So he's, no. These guys would have heard that, Jesus is at the right hand, and they would have saw that as a co-regent. Jesus is equal with the Father. He has the power of Yahweh, the power of God. Jesus has been lifted up, not only resurrected, but ascended so that he can be the king of the universe. That's what they're saying. As, note this word, leader and savior. 
This is what the, the boldness of this message of these guys is predicated on this assertion that Jesus has been exalted. The reason these guys can stand before the most powerful um, board in Jew, within the Jewish uh, people is because they have this belief that Jesus, their guy, their champion, is literally in heaven ruling the whole show. They literally believe that. This rabbi, this, this poor, seemingly uneducated rabbi who was crucified and killed is now the king. They're so confident in this that they're bold in the way that they interact with these powerful Sadducees. And what I want to do really quickly is I want, you to, I want to introduce you to a word that you need to know when you read your Bible. Okay, the word is here translated leader. He says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. This is a really cool word, and it comes up all throughout the New Testament. The word is archagos. Can you guys say archagos? Okay, good job. Archagos, A-R-C-H-A-G-O-S. It can be translated the following. Captain, author, originator, founder, trailblazer, leader, Prince, and my favorite, champion. He is the champion. This is why Peter has such boldness, because Jesus is his champion. There's this scene in, in The Hobbit, <laughs> in it, the, the, new, the new one, if you watch it, and it's kind of giving some of the backstory to these, these, this band of hobbits and and the older one, I can't remember his name, but he's, he's explaining how he got sort of um, to, to be a follower of Thorin Oakenshield. And it, go, it sort of shows this flashback, and, and it shows Thorin taking on the lead bad guy. He's just, he's just championing the cause, right? And, and this guy looks up, and he sees Thorin taking on this guy with this just branch of a tree. And then he famously says, he famously says, there is a man or there is one I could follow, there is one I could call king. And he goes, that's the guy. That's the guy I'm going to follow. He's my champion. He's the champion that I can follow. In Hebrews chapter 12, flip there really quick. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. The New Testament author of Hebrews picks up this idea about Jesus being the champion Someday we'll study Hebrews. It's amazing. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is right after the hall of faith, which is just basically a list of all these people that ran the race of faith. And then you get to chapter 12, verse 1, and it's really a continuation of the same thought. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, referring to all of those that have ran the race of faith before, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so closely and which clings so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Listen to this. Looking to Jesus, the archagos, the champion, the founder, the author, the captain, the trailblazer of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, there's a translation here that I think is wrong, and I'm not saying that because I'm a Greek expert. I'm saying that because um, many people think this should be changed. Although it's true to say that Jesus is the founder of our faith or the author of our faith, what it's actually saying is that Jesus is the author of faith. 
Listen to it like this. Jesus is the champion of faith. He is the faith racer. See, the gospel, Christianity, it's not about um, us all running our race. It's about the fact that Jesus ran the race. He crossed the finish line before you were even born. And he gave you his time. He gave you his race. He says, here, let me impute my race to you because I'm your champion. I've taken the field for you. I've taken the hill. I've conquered death. I've conquered sin. I've lived the perfect life. And now I've ascended to the right end of the Father and I'm giving you my race because I'm your champion. He is our champion. We can't lose because Jesus already won. Let me teach you a theological phrase. It's called the already not yet. The already not yet. Theologians are trying to, to find a way to, to, to grab this idea that, that Jesus said it is finished, which is true, but at the same time, we're still waiting for his return. How do those two things work? It's the already, not yet. Do you understand that, that it's finished? What well, doesn't feel finished? It feels like I'm still struggling with sin and there's still sickness and death and people dying and all this stuff. Yes, because it's not yet consummated, but it has been inaugurated. Jesus has finished the work, and now we're just waiting for him to finish what he finished. <laughs> it is done. And we live in that tension, in that middle place, but Jesus has already taken the field. When you crush a snake, do you know what happens? It wiggles around for like five, ten minutes. It's kind of creepy, okay? So what's happening. Jesus crushed the head of the snake on the cross, He's still wiggling around, but he's dead. He just doesn't know it yet. He just doesn't realize it yet. The kingdom is inaugurated, but not consummated. And what does this mean for us? Have you guys ever heard this saying? It's been extremely helpful for me in my life. We have been saved from sin's penalty. We are being saved from sin's power. That's called sanctification. And we will be saved from sin's presence. Sin's presence. Someday we'll be removed from feeling the weight and the sadness and the sorrow of sin. God's salvation has happened, it's happening, and it will happen. God saves. He's saving, He will save. We live in this place. But what we have to remember, even as we're tuned into all the bad news, is that the best news is already assured. Our hope as believers is not will something happen, it's it has already happened. And we stand on that reality. Isn't that good news? You know, I mean, that's just really good news. And, and, and I, I don't think that um, anything gets us to move more than just believing what God already did. Believing what he already did makes us want to be part of what he's doing. That's, that's why we're, and since you guys are visiting, let me just tell you, we're a gospel-centered church. What that means is, is that we believe the best way to get Christians to grow is not by making them feel guilty or telling them to go do more or getting them to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. But in fact, the way to get Christians to grow is just to tell them what God already did for them. And it's out of the belief in that that we respond. Because we've been given a new set of affections, we respond to that and naturally want to get on board with his program and tune into what he's already doing. That's the good news of the gospel. Luke didn't intend for us to look at this passage and go, okay, what are we supposed to do here? These guys didn't do anything. They were just overwhelmed by what God already did, and they were following the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
And that's my prayer for this church. It's my prayer for this city, that we would be those that believe the good news of the gospel and are affected and moved by it because we believe it's true. Amen? Amen.